you know, health professionals who describe working in jails and prisons as a form of harm reduction. Our work is reducing the harms of what these environments do to people. You know, we have powerful tools at our disposal, whether it's you know, medications or otherwise, but I, just that's one example of kind of the ethical challenges of thinking about how we are interacting in these environments and what role we play in terms of clinical care in settings. This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that sparked their love of healthcare and changed the way they practice medicine. Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein, and I'm an emergency medicine resident at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine, We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work. Hi, Shiva. How are you doing? Hi, Nicole. I am doing really well today. Thank you. How are you today? I am doing excellent. I'm so excited to be talking about dual loyalty in medicine. And particularly, we're discussing the care of patients in custody or in jail or those incarcerated, which is kind of an interesting topic that we haven't covered on the podcast before. Well, I'd love to hear if you can share any experience that you've had with taking care of incarcerated patients. We have had definitely experiences where somebody who is in custody has been brought in either by the police because they're being arrested and they need to be cleared medically or from jail. The problem is that there's so many life circumstances that have led somebody to the point of having to be brought in by police officers and being under custody. And I'm always wondering and wishing to know more. And I remember going to a conference once, I think it was during residency, where somebody was sharing how we as physicians spend so much of our time being so busy with the medical care of patients and the rapid fire of problems that it's like we're at the edge of a river and we just have to keep rushing in to save one person after another after another who's drowning in the river. And we never really have the time or the space to be able to consider going upriver to find out why everyone is falling in. I really resonated with that because of the busyness of our lives as physicians in practice. So I think there's a lot upriver. There's a lot of things that have led to people who are incarcerated, and it's really sad that we can't help people beforehand. Nicole, how, how about yourself? Yeah, I love this topic because in the emergency department, we take care of a lot of patients in custody. We have police and security at the hospital, but anytime we have a patient who's in custody, they come with at least one, a lot of times multiple police officers. And oftentimes the police officers take a seat right in the patient's room. It's important as providers to understand that from the police perspective, they need to have a visual on the patient. They need to see the patient. But actually, this patient also have their own privacy laws in terms of their health information. And so I think it's also important to recognize that even in a busy place like the emergency department, it is totally appropriate and I think needed to create a situation where the officers feel comfortable, they have some sort of a visual on the patient, but they are out of the room to the point where your patient can share in the privacy of their own space, their health information.
So excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Nathaniel Morris, to discuss his experience as a psychiatrist in the correctional setting. Dr. Morris completed his medical training at Harvard Medical School. He did his psychiatry residency at Stanford University and then completed his forensic psychiatry fellowship at UCSF. He's now an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at UCSF and provides care to patients incarcerated in the San Francisco jail system. Dr. Morris has published numerous articles on the ethical and structural challenges of providing mental health care in the era of mass incarceration, including a perspective piece in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2021 titled From Crime to Care on the Frontlines of Decarceration. Welcome, Dr. Morris. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. We like to start every one of our episodes by asking our guests to, in short, share a meaningful moment from sometime early on in your training that was, in particular, a very formative or defining experience. When I was finishing up medical school, I was doing an away rotation at uh, Bellevue Hospital, uh, which is in New York City, and I was a fourth-year medical student. Uh, this was a rotation in forensic psychiatry, you know, working on an inpatient forensic psychiatric jail that was for people who... Uh, were incarcerated on Rikers Island, so in jail in New York City, and were, were basically so sick from a psychiatric standpoint that they couldn't be managed in the jails there and had to be hospitalized at, at Bellevue on this on this jail unit. You know, there were law enforcement officers everywhere, and you had to wait for barred gates to open up to go anywhere, and, you know, the patients were in jail attire and would be moved in shackles often. So this was pretty pretty jarring uh, experience for me compared to the rest of my medical school rotations. So one day we're, we're sitting in a group meeting and one of the patients who was about my age and, and my height, he uh, looks me straight in the eyes and he says, you know, we're not so different. You know, you could be the one sitting here in my shoes going through this and, and I wonder how you would feel about it. And I remember it, it, it kind of caught me off guard because it was kind of this jolt to the system. You know, not only was he, he right that, you know, I or anyone could, you know, find ourselves in those same shoes, you know, incarcerated, traumatized, you know, looked down upon, stigmatized. But there's something about what he said that really sparked something in me about kind of law and mental illness and really how we treat the most marginalized people among us. And, and I think that was actually the beginnings of what later became my you know, clinical career, which is, which is working with incarcerated patients and you know, advocating to change for the ways in which you know, we incarcerate people in this country. Today, we're discussing the unique role of psychiatrists in the correctional setting and the concept of dual loyalty. So Dr. Morris, can you define what dual loyalty is and how that plays out in your daily practice at the jail? So dual loyalty in healthcare contexts is this concept where health professionals are torn between their you know, competing obligations to patients and to other kind of third parties. And so both, both of you, I imagine, have actually come across many dual loyalty examples, even outside of a jail setting in, in just everyday kind of healthcare settings. Let's just take an example. If you're a doctor and you're working on an inpatient unit, you know, you have duties to take care of your patient and to promote their well-being. On the other hand, you might have pressures from your hospital system or the administration, and they are reminding you to discharge patients as quickly as possible because you need to open up beds for other patients. That's one example of dual loyalty, right? Your loyalty to your patient is you're kind of being torn between that and your loyalty to the hospital system. And so in jail and prison, settings, these, these types of competing loyalties can, can play out all the time. You have your duties to your patients, but you might also have duties to the jail or prison facility that you work in. So in this situation, like you want to see a patient in a private room, but custody staff, whether that's a, a correctional officer or a deputy or uh, whomever, they put the patient in handcuffs to go into the private room because the, you know, maybe the patient has some sort of security status, right? So what do you do in that situation? That's a, that's a complicated question. You know, you also in these environments have competing duties to the court system, to the public. So let's say a judge or an attorney 
only wants to release someone from a jail or a prison if they're taking psychiatric medications. But when you talk to the patient, they don't want to take medications, right? That, that's a really tricky uh, situation to be in. And so th there are just uh, countless examples like this where you know, these types of competing obligations can come up in jails and prisons that can you know, not only be challenging, like what do you do, but, but also really distressing for health professionals to try to kind of figure out what, what's the you know, ethical and right thing to do next. But I've been torn between the hospital system and the patient care for all these years, and I didn't have a name for it. So I really appreciate your <laughs> you're sharing why I have felt so distressed for so many years. Like, God, I want to do right by this person, but they're making me discharge her. And, you know, it doesn't feel right. So there's this ethical, always sort of this balance. So I appreciate that. Dr. Morris, can you share an example of a patient or an experience where you felt the conflict of dual loyalty in your own practice? One example is something that I discussed in the decarceration article in the New England Journal that you mentioned. During fellowship, I was working in a clinic where we take care of patients who were involved in something called a collaborative court, problem-solving court, which is basically a court where people who have been charged with crimes, they might be released into the community to receive treatment services rather than kind of sit in jail. And if they complete their treatment plans over some time period, their charges you know, might be reduced or even you know, dismissed. And all that time, they're in the community rather than you know, sitting in a jail cell. So we often had patients who were on ankle monitors or they were in strict treatment programs or they had to take their medications regularly. And oftentimes, as with any patient population in, in primary care, mental health care, or, or wherever, a certain number of patients would you know, just stop taking their medications or they'd stop showing up to their appointments or you know, even stop returning our calls, right? So during court sessions, uh, the judges and the attorneys, let's say they're now asking, how is Mr. Smith doing? And this is a classic example of dual loyalty. Because if you say Mr. Smith has missed his last three appointments and hasn't picked up any of his medications and hasn't returned our calls, he might get remanded, which means they might put out a warrant for his arrest. They might arrest him. They might bring him back to jail until they can figure out what to do with him. But if the judges and attorneys say, how's Mr. Smith doing? And you know all of that information, you don't say, you kind of risk you know, almost lying, or perhaps there's a reason the court's worried that Mr. Smith might be violent or the public might be at risk. And so you're really torn in between this role with a patient who you have a responsibility to take care of them and do everything you can to support them. On the other hand, there's these legal authorities here who you are getting pressure from in terms of uh, reporting what's going on with the patient. And so th those are really challenging situations about how to best kind of navigate between those kind of dual loyalties. Probably the less satisfying answer is that it really depends. It's on a case-by-case -case basis. I'd say you always have to take the totality of patient circumstances. And at least one way that I viewed in kind of those dual loyalty examples is how you view the patient in terms of what is going on in their life, right? If, let's just take example A, somebody who is just does not want to come to their appointments, is incredibly violent, is does not want to take medications, say all the worst possible things about somebody. You could take that example and report that to the court. Or you could say, wow, this is somebody with all these social determinants of health that are really hard and this person is doing their best. I know them. You know, is there any way we can give them another chance? Here's all the ways in which we can mitigate their risk. Here's all the ways we can figure this out. Those are really, really different approaches, right? Amidst those two extremes I just presented, I definitely try as best as I can to inhabit the latter, right? Of empathizing, putting myself in people's shoes, understanding them as best as possible and communicating that. I, I think there's, you know, quite a bit of, you know, literature that's starting to come out or has come out over the years about dual loyalty and um, even some attention in terms of having more training related to it. And at the end of the day, recognizing it, right? Because if you don't know or acknowledge that these conflicts are happening, that's probably when you'll make the most mistakes. 
Whereas if you're cognizant about them, if you're paying attention to them, if you know that these competing forces are there, then you can pay attention to them and kind of figure out, you know, what's the most ethical and right thing to do in those situations. I want to take the moment to talk about two articles. One of them is published in JAMA in 2017 called Interrupting the Mental Illness, Incarceration, Recidivism Cycle. And the second article was published in The Lancet in 2017 called Mass Incarceration, Public Health, and Widening Inequity in the United States. At any given time, there are around 2 million people incarcerated in the U.S. As of 2016, it was estimated that 10 to 20% of those in jail and 25% of those in prison had a serious mental illness. That's three to six times the rate of the general public. In an era where mental health has been deinstitutionalized and policies have exacerbated mass incarceration, correctional settings have often become the de facto mental health service for this population that don't have access to care. This is extremely disheartening as we know criminalization and mass incarceration is detrimental to not only the incarcerated members, but also for their families and their larger community. And unfortunately, Black communities are disproportionately affected by these policies. Dr. Morris, can you talk about a time where you felt the ethical challenges of working in a correctional system? There's so many different you know, unique challenges in this environment in terms of providing mental health care. And one ethical challenge I'll bring up relates to the ways in which psychiatric medications are used. You know, let's say you have a patient who's you know doing okay. They're, they're communicating with their family, reading books, you know, socializing with peers. And we're just kind of checking in every once in a while from a mental health standpoint. Suddenly this person gets sentenced to 20 years in prison, right? And now they're feeling depressed and they're asking for an antidepressant. In this situation, are we now medicating this person against the effects of the legal system? And that's a really complicated question. You could play devil's advocate here. You could say, is this any different than people who ask for psychiatric medications who need them in the community after stressors, like you know, getting divorced or losing a job? But there are all kinds of examples like this that come up in jails and prisons and you know, people who feel very anxious before their trial or Let's say you have someone who's you know, banging on their cell windows, maybe because they're kept in the cell all day with nothing to do, or a solitary confinement-like environment, and custody staff, they want mental health staff to do something about it. So I once read an article about you know, health professionals who describe working in jails and prisons as a form of harm reduction. Our work is reducing the harms of what these environments do to people. You know, we have powerful tools at our disposal, whether it's you know, medications or otherwise, but I, just that's one example of kind of the ethical challenges of thinking about how we are interacting in these environments and what role we play in terms of clinical care in these settings. Policies of the jail or the prison and how they care for people on a larger level other than the individual mental health. Like you said, are they provided enough space and air and books and distraction from their obviously very difficult scenarios in their lives. So I, I would like to ask you, Dr. Morris, how you grapple with the need to dismantle mass incarceration while also working within the system. So th yeah, this, this is a great question. You know, whether working in jails and prisons somehow supports these institutions. It's something I've struggled with for a long time. And ultimately, I, I've come to a few conclusions. First is that I'm a strong proponent of you know, radically rethinking what our jail and prison systems look like in this country. Just for those listening, you know, as a reminder, jails are often where people are held waiting trial or you know, with short sentences. And uh, prisons are typically for people who have been convicted um, and they kind of serve longer sentences, like a year or more. I can see arguments 
that can be made for dramatically scaling back prisons in terms of coming up with alternative ways or different ways to rehabilitate people, right? But I'm not sure I've, I've yet really been able to envision a future and how we will get by without at least something like jails. And perhaps it's cynical, but you know, people will always make mistakes or do bad things. And regardless of how we might want to punish people or rehabilitate them, we will always need some sort of holding place to figure out what to do with people. And I think as long as those holding places exist, we need physicians to care for the people inside of them. The second is more present-minded, and you know that jails and prisons are, in my view, have really become among the front lines of mental health care in this country. There are millions of people, literally this moment as we sit here, who are caged in jails and prisons, and many of whom need health care. And I think it's pretty easy to say, okay, we should get rid of mass incarceration and hope it goes away in the next few decades and kind of go about your day. But taking that approach you know, ignores the millions of people who are suffering and need help, not in months, years, decades, right now, though. I think the third and maybe you know last one I would say relates to our roles as physicians and health professionals as you know advocates inside of these criminal legal systems. A colleague Elizabeth Ford, she once wrote an essay that we need voices that scream from the inside. You know many of the patients who I see are among the most marginalized people in society if you think about incarceration, mental illness, addiction, homelessness, unemployment, you know you name it. And have people with white coats, or at least you know those credentials and mission, who can stand up inside and say, you know, this is wrong, or this needs to change, or these people deserve better. Uh, you know, that to me is a profound role of working as a physician. And so I think, yeah, dismantling mass incarceration, or you know, in some ways requires working inside of it to understand the problems, not only to understand them, but just to, to also shine a light on them and to help to be part of the the solution to help design you know more humane and health oriented solutions. We've talked on this podcast a lot about the importance of mental health. There is such a lack of mental health providers, and the system to access mental health is so difficult to navigate. And so I would just like to ask, you know, in an ideal world, what does mental health care look like for you? You know, we could talk about, you know, universal health care or you know, access to on-demand mental health services at any time. Like at the end of the day, I, I've become an almost almost religious adherent to the notions of, you know, social determinants of health. And I you know, really liked the example uh, you gave earlier of, you know, the example of the people in the river. In my view, you know, the vast majority of, you know, you know mental health care is, is, is not necessarily, you know, prescribing an antidepressant or, you know, meeting with a therapist, even though those can be, you know, quite important and even life-saving. But instead, it's it's schools, right? It's it's parks in our neighborhood, public transportation infrastructure, you know, these are, all these have profound influences on people's mental health. And so I think, yes, if, you know, if you were to ask me what would an ideal world mental health care look like to me, much of it would be invisible. And we, we wouldn't need a great deal of the mental health services that you know, we provide today. You know, we'd have stronger safety net, a commitment to public well-being, you know, more robust public schools, um, universal pre-K and child care, better parental leave, affordable housing jobs that pay living wages, more effective firearm regulations, you know? And so am I an advocate for the kind of standard approaches we often hear in medicine of, sure, we need a bigger pipeline for mental health professionals. Yes, we need more access to evidence-based treatments. Yes, we need broader access to evidence-based therapies. You know, all of those are quite important. But, you know, really at the end of the day, I, I think that kind of invisible social determinants infrastructure, that would be an ideal world of mental health care to me. And that, that I think all together, all of those things we talked about, that would, in my view, really lead to profound changes uh, in this country in terms of mental health outcomes. What 
What aspects of working with the incarcerated population have been the most surprising or the most rewarding for you? And if you have any particular experience that highlights this, we'd love to hear about that. What's been most surprising to me over time is really realizing just how responsible you know all of us are uh, for the people who wind up in jails and prisons. And before I began working in this field, I, I think I thought of jails and prisons as some sort of, you know, scary, distant place where people are kind of kept out of sight and out of mind. And But I think we're, we're responsible for these places in multiple ways. You know, first is in a literal sense, you could say as citizens, as taxpayers, these are not just quote unquote jails and prisons. These are our jails and prisons, right? We pay for them. We vote for the people who run them. We decide the policies about them, right? And so I, I think that's an important thing to think about. But second, I think in a broader sense, I, I think about the ways in which you know, we as society have failed so many of the people who wind up in these places. Take a step back, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally naive, right? And I, I understand that there are some people who make bad choices, right? Even people who have every single opportunity in life can do bad things. But, and you know, at least just in my experience, the, the vast majority of people who I have encountered in jails and prisons are usually there because they are poor. They're there because they haven't been given opportunities for education, for employment, because they don't have housing, you know, because of racist policies, you know, all of these taken together. When I actually started my current job, I, I think I went the first couple of weeks before I met a patient who had an actual apartment and who wasn't homeless. And so I think it's far easier in all of our minds, um, you know, to sit back on the couch, to point at someone, to say, oh, they, they did something wrong. But I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, seeing the incredible and, you know, universal trauma among the patients whom I care for every day is, a, is really a reminder that it's often not just someone, you know, an evil person who is doing evil things, right? Um, you know, sure that can happen, right? But but more often in my experience, it's it's people who who, who make decisions or who, who end up in situations that, that you you or I might make if we were, you know, brought up in the same circumstances. I, I once heard the phrase that um, hurt people hurt people. And, you know, I, I think that is, you know, certainly resonated with my work and how, you know, we all have a responsibility to really, you know, better care for, you know, the poor, the sick, you know, the, the most vulnerable among us. And as we wrap up the podcast today, I'd love if you could share some advice. Do you have any for medical trainees who are at the beginning stages of their careers? If I might share anything that I've learned in, in kind of recent years is, is really the, the profound role that we have as physicians and I'd say as health professionals more broadly in, in speaking up for you know those who are less fortunate than us and, and using our position for the for the purposes of advocacy and, and social justice. And when I was in medical school, I'm not, I'm not sure I fully appreciated the gravity of you know putting on a white coat and how you know years later people who you know have never met you will stop and listen to what you have to say just because you have you know two letters after your name. You know, I'd say to those at the start of your careers, really, you know, to, to use that power, really to step into dark places, you know, and be a source of light and, you know, to call out wrong when you see it. And, you know, in doing so and in, in using, you know, that respect and that, you know, position of power that you have as, you know, a physician or as a health professional, I, I think you can do that to, to really leave the world kind of a better place than you found it. You know, when we have folks who join us in the jails and the prisons, and I'll often say coming into these environments as a trainee, literally just, I think, seeing these places really changes the ways in which you take care of patients. And whether you're going to work in these places or not, if you've never seen a jail, if you've never seen a prison, if you don't know what it looks like for somebody to be put in a cage, regardless of whatever specialty you'll go into, you won't think about 
what that means for someone's life. And if you have a patient who's been incarcerated or who's been in solitary confinement or who hasn't been with their family for 20 years and they come to you in primary care clinic or in a psychiatry clinic or wherever, you know, what's, what's the likelihood if you don't know that information or, or talk with people about those experiences that you'll have a good sense of their life story? I think we can do a lot more to expose whether it's medical students, residents, um, you know, people throughout the medical community to these places and, and what they mean for people's lives. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This has been so wonderful, and I'm so excited to be able to share it with our audience. Extremely enlightening. Thank you so much, Dr. Morris. Nicole and I love going into the darkness and being the light, the quote that you shared. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I I don't know if it sounded too much like Spider-Man or something, but... (laughs) 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 It was perfectly like Spider-Man. You are (laughs) Spider-Man. You're super uh, human to a lot of people and deserve that, that role as that hero. Thank you for tuning in today. And allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And share with friends, family, and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by... Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Hohenstein, David Elkin, Nikki Elkin, Aheli Chattapadai, and Leigh Kodama. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein, Nikki Elkin, and Leigh Kodama. Intro and closing by Daniel Wentling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer. 